of the, of the challenges we face and, and a sort of future vision. Was that a conscious decision at the start or was that something that happened in reaction to your conversations with Jack and others? Um, I wouldn't say it's a reaction to, to Jack and the Venus project. Um, I think when you speak to Jack, there is, there is a lot of space for, for the humans. Um, however, they sometimes are not, uh, maybe at first, apparent because what he's trying to do is to create a society where the humans get to decide what they want to do with their time. Um, I wouldn't really want to have a different kind of future when someone said that I have to do this, this and this. But um, in a way that gives us a, a, a bit of a bigger challenge. I remember in the beginning when I was speaking to Jack, <clears throat> I was sort of, because he likes to provoke, he likes to get a reaction out of you. And he likes to tease, so he, he, he sort of finds what, what is dear to you and then he picks on it. So he, he challenged the, the usefulness of art a lot with me. Um, and was sort of going, ah, it's just bullshit, it's just bullshit. <laughs> um, and me go, no, it's really important. Uh, but, but of course, if you have a society where the needs can be provided for you and you choose not to, I suppose you can argue that everything becomes art. Because we still, we still do ancient pottery, even though we don't need it. We have plastic, we have machines that can do it. But we do find a different kind of value in, in making our own pottery. Um, and that could be the same if you could have your house built for you, you know, to, to build a house could become your own project or, or, or even art or even cooking could become art if you have, um, uh, that's not actually in the film, but he has this idea of this um, computerized chef where you program what kind of chef you want to prepare your food and you don't have any, any staff in a restaurant, for example. So, so all of these things become choices and things that you do because you choose to do them. And that is actually, I think, a huge challenge to do things because you want to do them. Because I think we get a lot of security from the fact that we have to get up and we have to go to work and, and, and to start to, to, to cope with freedom, I do think is, is one of the biggest challenges that actually technology, maybe ironically, has presented us with. Um, yes. Because it seems, I mean, it seems quite sort of techno-utopian, um, <coughs> and I know that Jacques doesn't like doesn't like the term utopian, and no. I think he's absolutely right that it's all you know always changing. But maybe one of the things we fail to do when we espouse these techno-utopian visions is actually show that people can live fulfilled lives in them. You're not just running around with lovely technology all around you. There are yeah. I mean, maybe you would choose to live a life where you use very little technology, but technology could enable you to live that that kind of life as well. Um, you could choose where you would want to spend your time. So I'm also interested in the, in the sort of role of visions and whether they're utopian or not in, the, in, in creating change. Um, and it's something we, so we struggle with a lot in my organisation. Yeah. And I've kind of switched back from the idea that you can have sort of intelligent design futures and, you know, you can map out something in sort of great detail. And if it's particularly disruptive, people find it very difficult to understand or to latch onto. And instead of going down that route of a highly designed, highly sort of um, disruptive vision that people can get onto, I've kind of gone back to that. We just need to experiment as much as possible, get the experiments out there and see which ones work. Do you sort of have any comment on that from? No, I, I think that's absolutely right. I never looked at the Venus project as that is the future, that is what it's going to look like, and that is what I want it to look like. I think, if anything, we can be quite sure that it won't look like that. Um, 
and that's a good thing, you know, it's, but what it does do, it, it, it gives us a different point from where we can think. And for me, that was very, very valuable because I felt like that was very much missing in, in the debate about what was wrong. It's, it's a lot of critique and there's a lot of critique that is still the same. It's been this tug of war of, between the left and the right of, of the same fundamental system and the debate has been very much about who's going to control the money. Um, is it going to be some sort of collective control or is it going to be some of more as a self-regulated uh, system? But we're still talking about the same and, and, um, and it was actually the first time that I experienced someone to speak really outside of that and also having made this vision of a future and it doesn't really matter if you want that, but it still gives you a position where you can look back at your own um, society and actually see it quite different, which is a hard thing to do when you're in the middle of it. Yeah. I never actually sort of, until I watched, was watching the film, I never really thought about that the vision of a free market society is actually utop completely utopian. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and we seem to have actually sort of fallen out of love with that that utopia to some yeah. extent. Maybe we haven't realised the relationships over yet. But. It, it is a slightly destructive relationship, but it's still the relationship we know. Um, and, and, you know, it, it might... I think you have to, even if you are against capitalism, I think you have to, to recognise that it's a system that has enabled a lot of mm. things. And, of course, it's hard to say if it would have happened anyway, if, if knowledge would have progressed, and technology would have progressed as it did, but... The system that we have had globally has created these things, but that happens in relationships as well. You know, you, you grow in one, which enables you to to leave that relationship, and and, and uh, in love that can be incredibly harsh, um, and I'm sure in society as well. But it's that's that's the way sort of things change and grow, and and you grow out of things. Yeah, and we haven't we haven't learned to let go of the previous system at no, all. It's very hard. Um, so I'm sure you have some questions. We have microphones that are going around the room. Uh, when you ask your questions, can you please uh, wait for the microphone, speak clearly, and um, state your, possibly state your name and organisation, and if possible, try and frame it as a question or something that Maya can respond to. So where are the microphones? We've got a question in the front row just here. Thank you. There's always that delay for the first microphone. So, um, uh, my name's Prem Gianni. The company's called Lemon Drop. Um, you know what my granddad told me about hover boots, and I'm still waiting for them to arrive. Um, so, looking back, there obviously wasn't a tipping point that meant that suddenly somebody went out and developed the things. Um, did, did you get a feeling that, that he was talking about a potential tipping point that was going to happen that would, that would make would force society to actually go down this route? I mean, I think, I think they are quite clear in, in their sort of analysis of when, when machines change the, the conditions for, for society. But I think that tipping point has already happened. What is developing, though, is still developing within the system. Like, we, we cannot develop the 3D printer within the system, for example, because it would be contraproductive. Um, so that doesn't mean that we can't. And, and I think it's the same with, with the, the hovering boots. Like, if, if someone were to make a huge profit out of them, 
we might have developed them, but, but that is still the condition for something to be developed. That is how we are still agreeing to, to, to create value. So there's a lot of things that cannot be de developed if they don't fall into that set of rules of value. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think they're talking about, I think it's uh, 1927 as, as the point of when actually with machines we could produce more that we could consume. And, and that that is, if you like, a technological tipping point, even though, you know, that is before computers. So, so that would be completely, completely different now. But that is actually when that relationship changed. And it possibly has had, I mean, it's not, it's not that long ago, but it has completely, if you like, revolutionized the way we could uh, live in a society. And, and we have not revolutionized society to keep up w with, with that um, possibility. Great, so more questions? Uh, one in the front row here. Thank you. Um, I'm Mark Thompson. I own uh, the Light Centre, which is a health centre in Belgravia. Um, my, I've got two questions. Uh, the first one is, what brought you to want to make this film in the first place? So what series of events or life experiences brought you to this place? And the second one was, um, where did Jack move to? <laughs> and I'm just hoping it wasn't a <laughs> condominium somewhere or something like that. Um, I can start with the second one because it's the easiest one, because uh, he's still there. He's still in, in Venus. Uh, because it's completely impossible to sell anything uh, in, in Florida for the moment. Uh, and luckily he had, I'm sure some of you in the audience are aware of the Zeitgeist movement and, and everything that kicked off around that, which gave him much more exposure, um, which also meant that he is actually able to stay there. Uh, it, they're always, you know, on the edge all the time. They, you know, they, they live a very, very, they live the life they want to live very much, but that life is to work and to, to share these ideas. And for the moment, they're able to do that with support from young, enthusiastic people who are helping them. So they are still there. And I don't think they have any plans to move anywhere soon. I think it's still up for sale, but I, don't, I think they've sort of stopped hoping that it will be sold in, in the near future. Uh, the first question is how I came to Jack. Um, if I think I was, I think all my films, they, they, they are a progression of ideas and, and what I am interested in at the time and, and what they lead to. And at the time when I met Nadia, who is uh, embodying the, the you figure in the film, however you want to read that, um, I was very fed up with being against things because I had a very long list of things I was against. Um, and I was very much wondering, <clears throat> what am I for then? And, and that seemed to be a much harder, harder thing. And in the sort of artist circles I was in, it, it almost seemed like a really uncool thing to do. It was, it was cool to critique and tear things apart or even be just ironic or cynical, but it, it felt really hard to go actually, uh, like to be, to be for something. Um, so I made a short film about Nadia and, and Jack called Otega Zero, which is just a celebration of people who dare to say, I'm actually believed that you can make the world a better place, and this is how I think you can maybe do that. Um, so that's how I came in contact with Jack, through Nadia. 
<coughs> who I met pure by accident being lost in Rome, and that's another story. Um, I think it's quite an interesting parallel there between NGOs and artists that we've, for a long time, both have been against things and haven't very clearly espoused to be, be for things. And in many ways, the 2008 crash, mm -hmm. there should have been a lot more people who were for something that, that could have then had a progressive sort of vision yes. to replace it at that point and didn't, or yes. did or failed to do so. Yeah. Mm. More questions in the back? Hi, I'm Sasha from Results UK. Um, I wanted to know, so he talks about a resource economy and that technology could create abundance. And I wanted to know, does that mean that he has no issues with population growth? And how does he remedy population growth with technology? Um, it's, it's a big part, uh, the, the, the problem of population growth. I don't go into it in the film. It's, it's such an enormous issue and a very tender issue. Um, I think Jack doesn't think about controlling population with technology as such. I think he's more on the line of, of going to the research that has been done of what is actually helping or slowing population growth, and that is mostly education, that people, if they are educated for a longer period of time, it takes longer time to get children, and also being aware of, of the problem of having a lot of children. So I think it's much more of an awareness thing. I mean, a lot of his things comes back to education. Because um, none of these things would really work unless people were educated in a different, in a different way. Um, I mean, Roxanne has made the decision on ideological grounds to not have children, for example. And she keeps saying that that is her greatest gift to the world. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Thank you very much. Any other questions? Come on. Yeah. Hi, my name is Josh. Um, I was just wondering, since you profiled mostly um, scientists and technologists, and you just said that um, you were sort of feeling that you're an outlier in the artistic circles, if you feel like or know of any other artists, filmmakers, that might be working in that, toward that idea that, you know, we need to talk, start talking about what we're for. If there's any other artists that are looking at the economy and... Or, or in just in general, the, the, this idea of, I don't know, it seems to me like <clears throat> I agree um, very much with that idea that, I mean, I feel like there's a, sort of a lot of backward looking critique, but there's not a lot of people you know, I mean, and it's strange to me that it seems to me, uh, in a lot of ways, the artistic community is kind of not projecting into the future that much. I, I think there are a lot of artists who are interested in it. I mean, Lina, are you in, in the audience somewhere? Oh, I, saw, I saw you on the, on the list. Um, I'm very terrible with names, so I, w I won't remember any, any specific names, but I mean, just, just yesterday I got an email about that there is, a, in, in Scotland, there are a huge exhibition about basically future visions within economy and they are pure artist exhibitions. Um, and there are these things um, happening and there are also other philosophers who have similar ideas to Jack. I mean, I, I mean Jack's ideas are not coming from, from a vacuum. There are, of course, other people who have similar analysis of, of the situation we are in. Um, I can't 
I'm sorry, I can't really name on the top of my head like a particular artist that I can think of that is solely focused on, on this. If one comes to mind, I will find you later and <laughs> give it to you. I think that's quite I mean, interesting, the sort of creatives who are involved in you know, futures and visioning as a sort of hugely creative mm. um, discipline. And I think there's, it's become a very professional process. And actually, I think we need far more, slightly more of an artistic approach to it and a sort of vision, imaginary approach to it as opposed to a very academic focus to it. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I'm, in my research, I had quite a few conversations with um, a Swedish professor who is a professor both in economy, anthropology, and something completely unrelated that I can't remember the name of. But he, he had been thinking a lot about sort of who are key figures when, when it comes to change. And he was speaking about that it's very rarely the, the person who comes up with the vision or the idea, they are not usually the people who, who can work as activists to put it in practice. And maybe it shouldn't be those people who, who put it in practice, but there's, different ways that that brain works like and and there are loads of interesting collaborative projects I think between the science and art because you have these different ways of of thinking and I think those projects are, are really really interesting because I think you have to to try to find um, different ways to, to think about the future to actually find something that is is new um, Jack quite often uh, referenced the, the uh, Albert Einstein quote that you can't solve a problem mm. with the same system that you used in creating them. And, and how do you get around that? How do you think outside your own value system or your own, your own understanding of the world? And in experimenting and incorporating loads of different type of brains, I think that is one way of, of trying to step out of that. Yeah, we find, we find exactly the same thing in our work that, I mean, I think it mentioned it in the film that um, rarely is it big companies or the incumbents, the people who are currently enjoying success in a system that come up with the really disruptive ideas yeah, that change a system. Yeah. And, and why, why should they? Mm, yep, absolutely. We probably have time for like one more question if anyone's got one. Yeah, one at the back over there. Thanks. I my name's Laura, I work, for, I work for an MP. I'm just wondering if you want to say anything about politicians and the political system and how that all interacts with kind of this sort of exciting stuff. <laughs> um, I, I think that like, as well as party politics and activism and, and how you get involved on a grassroots level, all of those things are really, really important even if you think about visions that are in the future or philosophies about the future, because it has to be brought back to reality. And, and even if you would like to change society in a very radical way, you have to find a way to get there. And if you're talking about a global change of something as fundamental as an economic system, you know, it couldn't be have one person to say, I think we should do this, and then people somehow follow that. Um, I think change comes from when, it, when it's needed and when people want it. So that's the system that, you know, that's the structure that we have in place now. And that's how we are represented now. And that's how we would have to, to work with it. I mean, it's quite interesting that there are no really strong voices for the moment who are talking about a shorter working day, for example, because that has been an important political point, but it's a very unpopular political point for the moment. So that debate is, is not 
really been been talked about. It, it doesn't. We don't talk about unemployment as um, as a sign of luxury or as a sign of achievement. We don't see it as it's because we don't need everyone in our society to work anymore. How how wonderful! What can we do with all this time? How could we maybe use all these man hours that we potentially have to not just survive, to, to transform society into something greater. Um, we don't really talk about it that way, because obviously, you know, we were talking a little bit before about how you are useful to your society, and we have sort of gone from being useful in your society not too long ago, maybe even just a hundred years ago, is to be um, a producing collective, then you are useful to your society, to now when to be useful to your society you have to be a consuming individual. And, and psychologically that, that, that's an enormous shift and what that's, that's to how we feel about our society I think we shouldn't underestimate either. I mean and, and my point of view is that that's quite an, a lonely place to be, that the only way I can be useful to you is, is if I focus on myself and buy lots of stuff. Um, wasn't it George Bush who said after a crisis, now if everyone could just get out shopping. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's what we do, that's our response to a crisis, yeah. is to go shopping. Yeah, yeah. good little obedient consumers. Um, okay, so I'd like to draw that to a close. Thank you for all the questions. Um, before I ask you to join me in thanking um, Maya, I think the producer of the film, Sonia, just wants to say a quick word. And can I just thank all of you for coming? It's, it's a brilliant turnout in such a cool yeah. weather. It's <laughs> Hello, yeah, I want to echo that. It's brilliant to see so many of you here. Um, I just wanted to say at the end that um, you've all got these cards on your seats, or I can give you one if you haven't got one. If you want to stay in touch with us, please give us your, you know, your contact details. What we want to do with the film is really to get, get it out to as many people as possible. And to do that, you can imagine, even pitching, from pitching the film to distributing the film, it's been, it can be a battle just to, you know, <laughs> explain to people what it's about. So we want to do these sort of little preview screenings to really get people talking about the film and get excited about it. So if you feel like you're in an organization or a company or you have a venue, if you want to put on a screening, we, you can go to our website and you can, you know, get in touch with us and we are collating all that information in order to sort of allow us to do a release later on next year in the UK, but also internationally, we'll, we're working directly with various c companies, individuals, and so on. So um, stay in touch if, if you like what you saw, or tweet about it, Facebook, we're on all social media possible. Um, and But now I invite you all to for a nice drink on behalf of Scottish Documentary Institute. So Thank please join me. Thank you, Maya. And there are drinks, drinks out in the foyer.